Now, one of the reasons um, that we go, try to go through books of the Bible is that I think it helps us to be shaped by all of God's Word, um, not just the parts that we might naturally gravitate towards or the parts that we might like best or my own personal soapboxes. And we do this as we walk through books of the Bible chapter by chapter. It really forces us to examine difficult topics, and it forces us to wrestle with hard passages that we might not really want to face. And at times, this means uh, we have to wrestle with some of those hard passages that I personally don't want to face and don't want to have to preach. Um, today, we'll have three of them all in a row. Um, this morning, Jesus is going to teach the most difficult to understand parable. He's going to give a very quick, almost throwaway statement that is very harsh about divorce and remarriage. And then he's going to tell us a strange parable about heaven and hell and all of these that seem to imply that having any money at all is dangerous and evil. So this morning, I'm going to try and explain what all of those things mean, um, and I want to try to do it without apologizing, um, sanitizing, or trying to explain away Jesus's words. My fear is that when it comes um, to passages like this, sometimes we just tend to say, ah, oh, Jesus, it's just, it's so hard to understand what he means. And it's not really hard to understand what he means because it's confusing. It's hard to understand because we don't like what he says. And so instead of just saying, I don't like what Jesus says, he says, oh, that's so confusing. I don't know what that is. And so this morning, I, I just want us to dare to ask ourselves, um, what if Jesus actually meant what he said when he said it? So if you have your Bible, if you would turn with me um, to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to read it all at once um, as our normal habit to try and just get the brunt of Jesus' words, and then we'll try to understand it. Um, so if you're able, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, starting in Luke chapter 16, verse 1. And also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called to him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking away the management from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. And I've decided what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people might receive me into their homes. So summoning the master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down and write 50. And he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For it is exalted among men as an abomination in the sight of God. And the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. 
Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember, in your lifetime you received good things. And Lazarus in like manner, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may come and warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would illuminate your word to us, that your Holy Spirit would speak, that you would pierce our hearts and show us what your words say. Would you convict us of our sin? Would you encourage our faith? And would you strengthen those who are weak? Pray these in your holy and very precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, our first point for our first parable here is that we need to live righteously with fading wealth. That we need to live righteously with fading wealth. Now, most scholars agree um, that this first parable, the dishonest manager, is the most difficult to understand parable that Jesus tells. Um, and the main difficulty is that the good guy, right, the person that we are supposed to imitate is dishonest and untrustworthy. And the lesson itself of this parable is offensive as well because it seems to tell us that money is unrighteous, so we should use, but we should use it for the kingdom of God. Well, let's take a look, closer look at this parable here. So in one, um, in verse one again, it says, he says to his disciples, there's a rich man who had a manager and charges are brought against him, that this man was wasting his possessions. So this rich man has somebody in charge of his stuff and he finds out that the manager's been wasting all of his money. This word for wasting, it's the same Greek word that's used um, last week when we looked at the prodigal son, describing the way that he was wasting his father's inheritance on prostitutes and drinking and all the rest. So he calls to him in two and says, what's this I hear about you? Turn in the account of management. You can't be my manager anymore. So he confronts him. He's telling him, turn over all the books to me so I can inspect them and find out what you've been doing and clear out your desk because you're, you're fired. You're out of here. So the manager doesn't know what to do. And three, he says to himself, well, what am I supposed to do? He's taking this away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. So he doesn't want to beg in the street. His chances of being a manager somewhere else are, you know, about to be ruined because of this. He's not really equipped to do manual labor, so he's decided to come up with a plan that's going to keep him out of poverty. And four, I've decided what I'll do, so when I remove from management, people will receive me to their houses. He comes up with this plan. 
And his plan is to use his master's money to his own advantage until he gets fired and doesn't have it anymore. And so this is why he starts bringing in the people who owe his master's money debt one by one and asks them, well, how much do you owe my master? Well, he decides he's calling them all in and he asks them, what do they owe? And they tell him what they owe and then he lowers it. So if they owed 100, the first guy, well, now you only owe 50. Oh, you owe 100 things of wheat? Well, now you only owe 80. Now, he doesn't totally forgive the debt because that wouldn't work, but he does make it lower. And he does this so that when he's removed, the people will receive him into their house. Now those people whose debt he just forgave, don't you think they're going to be very happy with him? Okay, they're going to be deeply grateful for how he treated them. So now when he doesn't have a home, he's going to have a whole bunch of people who are very happy to take him in for at least a few days or give him whatever he needs because of how he helped them. And then eight, the master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So he discovers the scheme, and instead of being angry, he's impressed, which is not what any of us would expect. Certainly not what you would feel like if somebody who'd been wasting your money then wastes more of your money. But he's trapped, okay? Because what's happening here probably is that the master is more than likely charging high interest rates on his loans, which according to the God's commands is a sin to charge interest. So likely, the dishonest manager here is forgiving the interest on the loans. That's why it's only going down some. And so now the master is trapped. He can't go back on his alleged public repentance. Or at very least, everyone in town now thinks the master is very generous. So he doesn't want to go back on it. But what about that second half of eight? You know, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus seems to be saying, okay, the unrighteous and the unsaved are a lot smarter with how they live than the righteous and those who follow God. They're more intentional with their wealth than the saved. And then Jesus says that we need to be like this manager. I tell you, your friends, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, why does Jesus tell us to do this? Yet why is he telling us to be like an embezzling thief who steals more? Okay, it might be helpful uh, maybe for you to think of like a monster or a high story. Okay, like a, a movie or a show like The Sopranos or Ocean Eleven. Um, I love these kind of stories, especially heists. They're just one of my favorite things to watch. I love watching just kind of the elaborate plan, you know, to rob the casino, come together. And a lot of us, right, we enjoy watching these stories, and, and we cheer them on. We're cheering on the protagonists, not because we really think they're a good person. We might even acknowledge they're a terrible person, and if they go to prison forever, they deserve it. That's fine. Um, but it's a good story, and we can enjoy it, and maybe even there's something we can learn from it. That's part of what Jesus is doing here. He's telling us one of these stories, hoping that we will learn something from the main character. This is a man who is using his very limited time and the sinful money that his master stole to secure his future and to give back to those who are in debt in the process. And so now this doesn't mean, okay, we should all go work for the mob or for evil people, um, but it seems to be that Jesus is saying we need to be smart with our money. We need to live righteously with it because it is fading and it will disappear. I don't think he means that we should all go out and invest in the stock market, but he does seem to mean that we should invest it in the kingdom and in its people. We should spend our money even almost like it's evil, and we don't want it just sitting in our bank accounts accruing more. We should give it away as if we're about to lose it. Right? The illustration is somebody who's about to be fired and lose it all. They're going to lose their access to it, and so they need to do something to secure their future. The story, it's really kind of eschatological. It's pointing to the end. It's pointing to our deaths and to Christ's return. return. 
One day we're going to die. All our money is going to fade. Can't take it with us. So what we should do with it now is use it in a way that secures our future, that purchases an eternal home to ourselves. And you notice, too, when it says make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous and the eternal dwellings, uh, I don't think that is just, you know, we need to spend our money in a way that is righteous and pleases God so that he will be happy to take us into our eternal home. I also think that it means that those friends isn't just God and the angels, but it is other believers and other people. So that one day when that comes, there will be many people who will be happy to see us when we see Jesus. Ten, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. We have to be faithful with the riches God has entrusted to us. We shouldn't squander it, and we shouldn't waste it on ourselves or on our own selfish pursuits. We should spend it with eternity in mind. We should give it to those in need, and we should be faithful. Okay, because if we can't be faithful and honor God with maybe the very little that he's given us now, why in the world would he bless us with more? Not just why would he bless us with more tomorrow, but why would he bless us with more in the future? And 11, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, which seems to be implying the money that we have now, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you've not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is what your own? Again, it really seems to me um, that Jesus is implying that our money is unrighteous. And that when his cleansing fire comes, when he returns, that will burn away all sin and death and unrighteousness, all of our wealth and all of our money in the world will also just fade to ash and disappear. And if God can't trust us with little green pieces of paper or ones and zeros on a computer screen somewhere, why would he give us true riches beyond our imagination? If we can't be entrusted with his money, why would he give us our own? We have to be faithful. To be faithful with what he's given us now because it is fading and fading quicker than we think. We have to use it righteously. Now, point number two, it's not going to get much easier. Um, point number two, if you're taking notes, is that loving money blinds you spiritually. Loving money blinds you spiritually. I'm trying to follow Jesus while loving money is like trying to navigate around a city that you've never been in before, like a major city, picture New York or Houston, San Francisco, while blindfolded. Or it's trying, like trying to play quarterback with your helmet on backwards. Okay, it's blinded. It makes you completely unable to follow Jesus. You can't do it, is what he tells us in 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he's going to hate one and he's going to love the other, or he's going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. These words are very straightforward. We can't serve two masters. We only have room in our hearts for one. Now, this also means that we can't mostly serve Jesus, and then we'll do a little side gig for money. I will just serve money just a, a little bit. God requires all of our hearts. We actually have to, to hate money and to only love God. Now, the word for money, too, it's not a normal one either. The, word, the Greek word here is for mammon, which always has a negative connotation in Scripture. It is never positive, and it's never neutral. It is the desire for more and more and more. Having what you have is not enough. And the Pharisees in 14, who were lovers of money, heard these things, and they ridiculed them. Like most of us, if we're honest, um, the Pharisees don't like what Jesus says. Okay, they mock it. They think this, must, this is just foolish nonsense. Jesus, you're being way too uber-spiritual. You know, what are you saying? I don't like this. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows why they're complaining. He says, well, you don't like it because you love mammon, because you love your money. 
and you don't really love God. And we do the same thing here, I think. We think that Jesus must be saying something weird. He must mean, you know, somebody who's like obsessed or like in love with money. Maybe they're treating it like Smog the Dragon from The Hobbit. Um, But I, I think if we're just honest with ourselves, if we really would examine our own hearts, we would probably discover that we love money too. Probably more than we think that we do. 15, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, they're trying to justify their actions as something other than love. And we try to justify ourselves as well. Well, I don't really love money, you know, it's just, you know, I have to do things. But God knows our hearts. He knows exactly how the Pharisees feel, and he knows exactly how we really feel, not just how we convince ourselves that we feel. And God... God knows that what we exalt and praise among men is an abomination. We are often impressed with wealth. Okay, we love to exalt and to praise and to love the rich. They become our celebrities. People follow their every move. Then we get so impressed with them, we look to them to become our political leaders or we put them in charge of more and more things. But God isn't impressed by any of that. And then Jesus, he seems to transition. This is when he gets... Uh, somewhat strange. It talked about the law. In 16, it says, the law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom is preached. Everyone forces his way into it, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What does all of that mean? Jesus' main point in those verses is that God's commands have not changed. Jesus is not changing and revolutionizing the law. He is revealing what it has always meant and what it has always pointed to. He's not saying something new and strange. He's saying something they should have understood. Throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly warns about the dangers of wealth. They're commanded to care for the poor in practical, very significant ways. And God, the law hasn't changed. All of the prophets and even John preach the exact same message. And you see, now Jesus is coming. He's preaching. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God is here. And there are people when it's trying to force their way into it, right? It's, he's saying that everyone wants to come in. It's like a, a mob that is trying to squeeze into a concert first. Or picture people camping outside on Black Friday because they really want to get that big deal. The crowds are following Jesus. They all want to be with him. They all want to get into the kingdom, but the Pharisees stand outside and mock. They don't want any part of it. They don't want to come in. They have all the excuses in the world, all the theological reasons for why they don't have to obey. Oh, Jesus, you don't understand. You know, that was old. This is new. You need to get with the times. You need to be more modern. Jesus says, no, this is why I think Jesus says the law won't pass away, because God's standard of holiness doesn't change. And their blindness doesn't affect reality. They can say whatever they want about God's law, but God's commands are the same. And this is why when Jesus, so this is when Jesus makes his statement on divorce and remarriage in 18. Um, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. These are one of the times that I'm tempted to just skip over verses, and let's just ignore them, and maybe no one will notice. Um, But Jesus' statement here, really in the context of it, it almost seems like a throwaway or random, or like, why, why is this here? And it's because Jesus is purpose of saying this is not really to make a statement about divorce and remarriage. He's primarily using it as an illustration or as an example of the permanence of the law. But I don't want to skip over what Jesus says. Um, I want to just dive into it for a moment, be clear about what he says, and then why he says it. 
Because um, it's the only thing in the whole Gospel of Luke Jesus says about divorce and remarriage. He says other things in the other Gospels, but this is it here. Um, Jesus says in this place that marriage is permanent. Um, it only ends in death. Now, you can get divorced, and even in other places, there are biblical reasons for it. But in God's eyes, um, marriage doesn't fade. And so, those who get remarried, he then says, um, after being divorced, have committed adultery. And so, therefore, if you get divorced, you shouldn't get remarried. Now, that's what Jesus says. I, I know there are those of you here, and there are many of you who are divorced. I know there are many of you here who have been divorced and have gotten remarried. This verse does not mean that you are a terrible sinner who can never be forgiven. Um, it doesn't mean you should go and get divorced now so you can be in line with what Jesus says. I also don't think that this means we should never get divorced, right? There are biblical reasons to do so, um, like um, adultery, those who are being abused. And I've counseled people who have come and told me and said, yeah, you, you have biblical reason to get divorced. And so not only do is it permissible, you really should get divorced, please. Now, I... I I don't want to stay here on this place because, again, this isn't all about divorce and remarriage. Um, but I don't want to totally ignore it. But if you, want to, if you want to pull me aside later and you want to wrestle through more of what the Scriptures say and what Jesus says about divorce and remarriage, I, I am more than happy to do that. But Jesus' primary point here is that the Pharisees' love of money has totally blinded them. They're trying to explain away God's laws and why it doesn't apply to them anymore. They're figuring out why it's totally fine for them to divorce their wives and go and get a new one. And, oh, well, I can just be in love with mammon and money, no problem. But Jesus says, no, you can't. Marriage doesn't fade, and their love for money doesn't fade just because we want to pretend that it doesn't exist, or we come up with reasons for why it doesn't that's what Jesus is trying to get at here. And our love for money, it can blind us and it leads us to very dark places. Money is a God that you will never please with sacrifices. It will always demand more and more and more. And the more you love it, the more it leads you away from Jesus. I watched um, Killers of the Flower Moon recently. I love movies, so I'm always looking for an excuse to watch a new one or to go to the movie theater. But this one... It was a long story, and it's based on a true story of how the Osage were treated in Oklahoma um, after they discovered oil on their land. And one of the main characters in the story is based on a real person. He's called Ernest. And in the movie, he seems very ordinary. He's almost sympathetic throughout the whole thing instead of supremely wicked. Um, and a few, couple t a few times through the movie, especially at the beginning, he mentions you know, that he just, he just really loves money. Um, even though he thinks of himself as a good Christian man, as a man who loves his family, he does love money, and you watch as that love for money leads him to do some despicably wicked things. It leads him and many others to rob and to murder countless people. He murders many of the people in his own family, and he even begins to poison his wife. And the whole time, it seems like he is so blinded by money that he doesn't even realize how wicked what he's doing is. Our love for money can do the same thing to our own hearts. It leads us to a very dark place, and it starts subtly, and it starts quietly. We cannot love money and follow Jesus. We have to only love Him and nothing else. That's two. So two down. We've got one more to go. Point number three. How we use our money reveals our spiritual condition. Um, 
how we use our money reveals our spiritual condition. Our last um, difficult passage is a story of a rich man and Lazarus. Now, it's unclear if this one is a parable or if it is a real story. I think it's a real story. I could be wrong, and it could just be a parable, but I think it has too many specific details, and it uses too many names, and has too much um, theological stuff it's trying to do to merely be a parable. I think this is a, a real story Jesus is telling. And so at the beginning here, um, we have a rich man in 19. There's a rich man. He's clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, it's not just that this man is rich. We are also to look at how does he use his riches? How does he use his money? He doesn't give it away to anybody. He keeps it all to himself. And he's clothed in purple clothes. Okay, not just because that's his favorite color, like my oldest son, um, but because purple is the most expensive color. It is the color that is extravagance and luxury. He uses all of his money to buy the finest linens and the most expensive clothes that he can find. And every single day, he feasts. Okay, this isn't he eats a lot of food. He eats till he, you know, he's good, not a big dinner. He has a feast every single day. I want you to imagine Thanksgiving dinner, but every night. That is what he is doing. More food than he could possibly need. And while this man is feasting in this way, Lazarus has nothing. Verse 20, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Right outside his door at the gate at the end of his property, there's a poor man and his name is Lazarus. Him having a name is one of the reasons I don't think this is a parable. Or just a parable. He also seems to have been laid there because he can't move on his own. He's paralyzed, he's disabled in some way, and his body is covered in sores like Job. And all he wants is just a little bit of leftovers. Just one bite of that food that falls off the table onto the floor. Okay, Thanksgiving is coming up. Think about how many leftovers do you normally have after your feast? Okay, how many leftovers do you think there would be if you were eating that way every single day? Where is all that food going? Rich man knows the poor man's at his gate, and he won't let. And all he's letting all that food just get thrown away in the trash. He's making sure, no, don't give that guy even one bite. The only ones in the story who show any compassion are dogs. Unclean animals that Jews would not want to touch, and these unclean dogs are more righteous than this rich man. 22, the poor man dies. He's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So he dies right outside the place that could hold his salvation and keep him from starving to death, but he dies there anyway. But he starves to death, but God sees him, and God knows his name, and when he dies, he's touched by the angels, and he's taken to Abraham's side or to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also dies and is buried, but he doesn't go to Abraham in the place of the righteous. He goes to Hades. And in torment, he lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The rich man dies alone, but he goes to Hades in torment. Seems that all of his abiding by the law does not save him because he wasn't generous. He didn't give to the needy. The way he used his money revealed the true state of his heart. And from his place there, he can see Abraham and Lazarus. He recognizes the man. He even knows his name. But now their places are reversed. And now the rich man will beg. 
He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this thing. He begs for just a drop of water, a scrap from Lazarus' table, just as Lazarus begged for a bite. But Abraham said, child, remember in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in a manner bad things, but now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. Abraham responds and says, no, you're getting exactly what you deserve. Not just because this is karma and you had good stuff and he had bad stuff, but because of your lack of faith. And notice too, Abraham calls him child. And he calls Abraham my father. This means the rich man is a son of Abraham and a Jew. This is somebody who followed the law, who went to the synagogue, who did all of the commands, but did not have genuine faith. Because if he did, he would have shown grace to Lazarus. Because how we act with our money, and particularly how we act towards the poor and those in need, shows what our spiritual condition is. And a refusal to give to the poor and to give to those in need shows that we don't know Jesus. Now we can have all of our excuses. You might have a few ready already going through your head. Just like the Pharisees, we can complain, but God knows our hearts. And He judges. Um, we shouldn't spend our riches just on ourselves and our feastings or on building massive church buildings. Um, we should give it to others. And not just to those who we think are worthy and deserve it. And this is important for us to do because there's no second chance after death. 26, and besides this, between you and us, there's a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would want to pass may not be able to, and none may cross from here to there. Once we die, there's no way out. Our only chance to embrace faith in Jesus is now. Our only hope to escape the flames and torment is while we live, because later it's too late. And there's a number of things I think this teaches us, or what does this teach us about heaven and hell? No, first, I don't think um, where Lazarus and where Abraham are um, is paradise or is heaven. I think right, this is where the righteous are waiting. We call Abraham's bosom, which is just his side where Lazarus is taken. Um, this is where the righteous who before Jesus' death and resurrection went as they waited for the Messiah to come and to save them. And this is why later in the scriptures, especially in Peter, um, it says Christ descends down to the place of the dead and he preached and proclaimed the gospel and he set the captives free to proclaim salvation. Now, those who trusted in God's promises and who had faith in God already then went with Jesus to heaven. Um, but this isn't people who were in hell and suffering got a second chance out. There's a chasm. There's no way out anymore. So in 27, he says, well, I beg you, Father, send someone to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so they might warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So he starts to beg for his family. Somebody's got to warn them of the judgment to come. Warn them of what awaits them if they don't truly repent, if they don't have faith. I don't want anyone else to have to endure the consequences and the suffering that I'm facing. Now, inside of this request is his kind of statement that, oh, I didn't know. If only someone had told me. If only somebody told me that hell really was real. If only I knew that mistreating the poor and treating Lazarus this way and hoarding my wealth would have led me here. Well, then I definitely would have changed. And Abraham responds and says, no, they have Moses and they have the prophets. They should hear them. Abraham says, no, um, you've been warned enough. The law and the prophets already told them and you everything that you needed to know. But you didn't listen. And 30 says, no, Father Abraham, that, no, that's not it. But if someone came from the dead, then they would repent. He's got another complaint. 
Maybe if God just worked another miracle, do another sign, God, um, bring someone back to life, then they would believe. If someone came from the dead to tell them about the afterlife, then they would listen. It says to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced if someone rises from the dead. And that's where the chapter ends. It's on the note that if we don't heed the warnings of the prophets, you won't listen to the miracles either. After all, the prophets themselves have stories of people coming back to life. But Israel didn't listen to those, and the rich man wasn't listening either. And if you're spiritually blind, it doesn't really matter what God does. You won't respond to him. After all, Jesus is God in flesh. He's working miracles and teaching right in front of their faces, but they don't listen. They scoff and they ridicule him. And this last part of the story here, it's so clearly pointing forward towards Jesus' own resurrection because he will die in our place for our sins to bring us salvation. He comes back to life. He is resurrected, comes back from the dead, and he comes now to warn and offer us an escape, not just from suffering, but a way into paradise and eternal joy. But people still won't believe. And even after Jesus is raised, the same Pharisees here who didn't believe before don't believe then either. They plot further ways to stop Jesus' disciples. Oh, well, okay, let's start a rumor that they just stole his body. That's it. All over the world, even now, there are billions of people who don't believe that the man came back from the grave. But we must believe. We should heed his warnings. We should listen to him. So we don't listen to God's word now. If you don't um, hear it and receive it, there's nothing God could do. There's no miracle he could work that would change your heart. And if this God, Jesus, really did come back from the grave, which I believe with all my heart, we should listen to his warnings. We should listen to what he says, and we should dare to think that, well, maybe he was serious here about what he said about how we spend our money, how we feel towards it, and how we treat the poor. Because the way that we do, that we treat those in need, it reveals what we think about Jesus. How we use our money reveals what's in our hearts. So look inside yourself. Pray and ask God to reveal the truth to you about how do you really use your money? And what does it say about your faith? Are you really walking with Jesus or not? I didn't know Gene was making that announcement today, so that worked out well. It's almost like God plans things. Um, there's 18 needy families at our gates begging for a bite of food. How will we respond? How will we respond? I know and I believe that we will respond well and give them more than they ask. And I hope next year we feed a lot more families than that. Not just because we can meet those in need because they need it, because it reveals and it proclaims that we are people who believe and who love Jesus Christ who came back from the dead. And because of the way that he has shown incredible grace to us, we can give everything we have freely. Let's invite our worship team to come up and I'll pray for us. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that when we were the poor, begging outside your gate for salvation and grace that you gave it. Not because we deserved it, not because we asked in the right way, but because you are a gracious God who shows mercy to the undeserving who ask in faith. 
Lord, would you help us to be a people who love you above all else? And would you help us to show the grace that we have been shown to all those that we see, especially those in need? We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand as we worship our Savior one more time through song? Amen. Our benediction today, Corinthians, Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good you may do his will, working as such that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.